All honor, praise, and glory be to Thee, O God. We come into Thy presence, mindful of how rich we are in Jesus Christ, that we are in Him heirs of all creation. Send us forth, O Lord, therefore, in the power of Thy Spirit and in the certainty of our heirship, to conquer all things for Jesus Christ our Lord. In His name we pray. Amen. Our scripture this morning is from Romans 13, verses 7 through 10. Our subject is debt and the future. Our primary emphasis will be on verse 8. Romans 13, verses 7 through 10. Debt and the future. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul here speaks of the necessary debt required of every man to love his neighbor. The norm financially is that we be debt-free. But if necessity drives us into debt, the debt is to be for no more than six years. The seventh year, as Deuteronomy 15, 1 to 11, and many another text makes clear, is to be the year of release. But there is a continuing debt of love towards all men. And Paul makes clear that we are to give all their dues, and that we owe to every man without exception the duty of love. Now, love is not defined by Paul in emotional or sentimental terms. He that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. What does it mean? This, thou shalt not commit adultery. You respect every man's home and the sanctity thereof. Thou shalt not kill. You respect his life. Thou shalt not steal. You respect his property. Thou shalt not bear false witness. You respect his reputation. And thou shalt not covet. You do not by any means, legal or illegal, attempt to seize what is rightfully his. Today, of course, the use of the law to covet and to expropriate is very commonplace. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, 
Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is how God defines love in terms of his law. He also says that our duty towards ourselves and towards our fellow men and towards society is owe no man anything save to love one another. We have seen in our study last week that God's Sabbath requires a Sabbath of the land and of man from work and from debt. In a recent article, Otto Scott referred to something that he has discussed with us personally, that the Cathedral of Notre Dame was built when Paris had a population of 150,000 people. It was built in the heart of Paris. The first stone was laid in 1163. There was an ability in construction and an attention to in intricacy of detail which is lacking in any kind of construction today. The building of Notre Dame is a fact very much related to the question of Sabbaths and debt. Debt, both statist and personal, is inflationary and destructive. Solomon says in Proverbs 22:7, the rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant, or literally slave, to the debtor, to the lender. Debt is bondage, and debt is the premise always of ungodly rule. A non-Christian society will always be a society of debtors and an inflationary society. Debt and inflation involve always, as we saw last week, a consumption of the future and a burden on the present. We mentioned also last week the fact that a few years ago, the tax burden on every person in the United States was 45% of their income. More recently, the staggering figure of 59% has been given. As of 1983, local, county, state, and federal taxes eat up 59% of our income, directly and indirectly. This means, if we say it is no more than 50%, a man must work more than half a year to pay his taxes. So that, if it is only 50%, from January the 1st to July the 1st, you are working to pay your taxes. Now, if you pay God a double tithe, 
you will be working at most two months. This means that if you are a tither, you are, and you give above and beyond your tithe, you are supporting yourself on what you earn four months in a year. Now consider the implications of that. Eight months in a year, a man is working for the government or for God, if he's a tither, and gives gifts and offerings above a tithe. Four, towards his self-support. The amount of income required to support ourselves and to give a double tithe to the Lord amounts to less than six months in our contemporary society. Obviously, our status debt economy is consuming the major part of every man's income. If you add to that the burden of private debt, you will realize how much a man is working every year just to pay off taxes and his personal debts. If the civil tax, the tax by the state, were reduced to the biblical proportions as stated in the law in Exodus 30, 11 through 16. The same amount for all men 20 years old and older. A tremendous flood of funds would be available for use by the individual and towards constructing a godly society. We know how little of what goes for taxes reaches its appointed purpose. Attention has been called by some statisticians to the fact that if all the money appropriated for welfare got to welfare families, a welfare family of four would get over $40,000 a year. This tells you how little of what is appropriated accomplishes what it is appropriated for. But every dollar that goes for godly charity, godly welfare to create Christian schools and so on accomplishes the same at a fraction of the cost. Christian schools are operated for a fraction of what the public schools cost. Christian homes for delinquents, Christian welfare, a fraction of the cost, so that everything that is now done by the state could be better done by private or Christian agencies at a fraction of the cost that civil government imposes upon us. In other words, the modern state is the great roadblock to justice and to the future. It fosters debt and inflation, 
a consumption of the future and a demoralization of the present. Instead of doing its appointed task to be the minister of justice, the ministry of justice, it tries to play God and to take over and govern every area apart from God's ordained purpose apart from the way that God wants these things to be done. This makes clear the far-reaching implications of the Sabbath. As we have seen, to keep God's Sabbath, you rest one day in seven. One year in seven is what we should also work for, so that every seventh year, Men have a Sabbath, which today only your professors do. This would create men who are provident. It would require a society in which we don't have the present kind of taxation. If you can support yourself now on the income of four or five months, or let's say you don't tithe at all, six months or less. Actually, it's closer to five months given the present tax situation. Think how much you could save, how much you could do to have a Sabbath year, how much you could provide for your children if you did not have the civil tax, which is so destructive of society, which involves man playing God and trying to create a new world order apart from the fact of regeneration. What civil government is saying they can do with the taxes to remake man, when we know only Jesus Christ can do that. The Sabbath thus has far-reaching implications economically. It requires a provident, inflation-free society, a debt-free people. Debt living is, according to Scripture, abnormal. It is a form of slavery. The debtor is treated mercifully in the Bible, and debt living is discouraged except for emergency causes. On the other hand, when we look at the pagan world, we find that debtors were treated mercilessly, whether in ancient Egypt or Greece or Rome. Roman law was very, very harsh toward debtors. One of the older historians of Rome, Ferrero, said that the small landowners of Rome were destroyed by debt slavery, and that's his term. The result was that it created a revolutionary mob that had to be placated with bread and circuses. The foreigners were enslaved by wars, literally enslaved, and the people at home with debt and taxes. As a result, 
production was progressively hampered by debt, and slavery became the order of things. The parallels between Rome and the present world order are very, very real. It is interesting that an older uh, historian like Ferrero, writing at the beginning of this century, could speak about debt slavery as so basic to Rome. But today, you never read about that in the contemporary histories of Rome that are written and that are used in the schools and in the universities. After all, if they write honestly about Rome, what will they have to say about today? The early church worked to fight death slavery. We find in the letters of Gregory the Great, whose dates are 590 to 603 A.D., that he has the head of the church, spoke out against the continuing influence of the Roman kind of taxation. In his day, the very common tax, one of many, was the Berdationis. It was a kind of land tax, one of a number, which was always payable before the harvest deliberately. <coughs> this meant that the farmer had to go into debt before the harvest at a high rate of interest and he was continually the loser as a result. And so Gregory the Great in a letter to Peter, subdeacon of Sicily, declared, and I quote, Further, we have ascertained that the first charge of Bardatio exceedingly cripples our peasants, and that before they can sell the produce of their labor, they are compelled to pay taxes, and not having of their own to pay with, they borrow from public pawnbrokers and pay a heavy consideration for the accommodation, whence it results that they are crippled by heavy expenses. Wherefore, we enjoin by this present admonition that thy experience advance to them from the public fund all that they might have borrowed from strangers, and that it be repaid by the peasants of the church by degrees as they may have wherewith to pay, lest while for a time in narrow circumstances they should sell at too cheap a rate what might afterwards have sufficed for the payment of the due, even though, even so, not have enough." Unquote. The medieval church worked hard to try to relieve that burden. It issued prohibitions against usury designed to further God's law and to protect the people. But the civil powers followed the Roman model. The modern state has stepped up the exactions. We have not yet gone back to the torture chamber used by Rome to squeeze out taxes from people so that any hidden wealth might be coughed up, nor are the cruelties used by the medieval state to collect taxes. But give the IRS time. They're no doubt working on it.
The modern state, however, is moving in the same direction as Rome. The modern view of debt, of course, is at war with the Bible. In the Bible, debt is seen as a misfortune. Borrowing seen as something that is a necessity but never an advantage. But today, the advertising of lending agencies tries to play up your ability to borrow as a mark of some credit. And credit today means debt, not, as the word originally meant, a man of faith. A man of credit was a man of faith. Credit comes from the word credo, I believe. Today it marks not a man of faith, but a debtor. The Bible never sees debt as an advantage. It speaks of loans and of interest as a means of enslaving peoples. And this is exactly what it was in the ancient world. Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, all had means whereby they encouraged debt. As a matter of fact, Nahum 3.16 has a reference to the Tamkaru. These were the merchants, the credit merchants of Assyria, who like those of old Babylon, of Egypt, and so on, would always go before the armies moved into an area a few years before. And they would offer all kinds of goods on easy credit terms. So that long before Babylon or Assyria sent their armies into an area, the whole area was burdened with debt. And so the independent spirit of a people was broken. And then their armies could march. And they could be sure that they did not face a free and independent people. Remember, after all, Assyria, which perfected this, was a country with a very small population, very meager population. It would be comparable to Rhode Island taking over the United States almost. But they had a very simple method. Send out the credit merchants. Get every area subjugated and you'll break their spirit when they are a debtor people. And then our armies can go through them like a knife through hot butter. The Bible speaks of debt as slavery. Nahum says that these merchant bankers, these credit peddlers, were the advance guards of slavery. Today, everything by law is done to favor the man who goes into debt. You get a tax break if you're paying interest. They are not ignorant of what they are doing. 
A free people cannot be free long if they are debt slaves. What we have seen is that with World War II, the amount of debt, public and private, has skyrocketed. And now we are seeing the consequence of debt slavery as it has appeared over and over again in history. The loss of hope concerning the future. People have no hope. People see the future as grim and ugly. And the sad fact is that here where the Bible speaks so plainly, the church has been silent. Many churches which profess to be Sabbatarian are deeply involved in debt. I frequently hear from people who call to say we're having a problem in our church because the church board and the pastor are going to put us into debt for 500000 or $2 million for a huge building project and they tell those of us who oppose it that we lack faith. That if we really had enough faith, we'd launch out in faith. And, of course, there's one Christian organization which is on television now which has a debt of over $200 million and is beginning to get a little hysterical. Of course, I've had telephone calls from others who say that their church board or pastor or both are saying, don't worry about this big debt we're going into because... We're not going to have to pay it. The rapture is coming very soon. Blasphemy in the name of God. And we see a great change in every area. I grew up on a farm here in California. I've seen farming change. Why? Because when people are debt-ridden, they have to become more exploitive in the type of farming they do. Because you're continually behind. And you have oppressive payments of principal and interest. Debt in every area means the consumption of the future to pay for the past. This is why there are no cathedrals like Notre Dame being built today by a people who have the time to build, who are not debt slaves, however poor they might be, and they were not rich, the builders of Notre Dame. This is why so many of the really worthwhile things to see abroad and in the United States were built by people of generations ago when people took the Word of God seriously and did not live in terms of debt. 
They were not slaves. They had been made free men by the regenerating power of Jesus Christ. And they knew they could only stay free if they lived by the every word of God. And so we live surrounded by the monuments of a godly past and our age sees no hope in the future. It is a hopeless generation. And of course it should be. A slave has no future except slavery. If the Son of Man make us free, then we are free indeed. And if we are free, we live in terms of the laws of freedom. And the laws of freedom are the every word of God. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, Thou hast summoned us to freedom in Christ. And now the world is in slavery because it has forsaken thy Son, despised thy word, and gone a-whoring after the Balaams of our day, the modern states, lived by man's law. And by man's law, become prodigal and a slave people. O Lord, our God, by thy Spirit, raise up men who seek freedom in Christ, who find their way of freedom to be thy word, and who again make of us a people of righteousness, of justice, a free people, and a beacon of light of grace to all this world. Grant us this, we beseech thee, in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions concerning our lesson? Yes. What do you mean by a double time? Well, what the scripture requires of us is that we... Give a tithe every year to the Lord. Every other year, every year also there is to be another tithe. A poor tithe twice in a six-year period and then the uh, tithe of rejoicing before the Lord when you simply rejoice before the Lord in resting with your family. Now, when you add that to the other Sabbaths, you see that in biblical times, men had a lot of Sabbaths, a lot of resting. In the rejoicing tithe, you were to remember the widow, the orphan, the Levite, the poor generally, the stranger, and share with them. Thus, you had not only a tithe, 52 days in a year, the weekly tithe, a tithe the seventh year, 
but with a rejoicing tithe, you had a few weeks of tithes as well, of Sabbaths. So, there was a great deal of rest in a biblical society. And in an earlier America, there was a great deal of rest, despite the lack of the modern technology with all the labor-saving devices. Now consider what would happen with our modern technology and the ability to limit the amount of time spent at work if we had a different kind of social order, if we eliminated the heavy burden of taxation and created a godly state and a godly society. Then God's Sabbaths would have a markedly different meaning and impact. Yes. In this uh, statement about the fulfillment of the law and then it gives forth the commandments, it doesn't in fact address itself to the former verses that say we must pay taxes to whom taxes are due. Um, so does the we must pay taxes to whom taxes are due come in a category of a different definition that is this is an instruction or this is God's will or is this God's law? Yes. If indeed the law is fulfilled in the, in the following verses 8 through 10, Yes, in verse 7, what Paul says is, Render therefore to all their dues, man and God alike, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Then he goes on to say what this means if we render it to God. First he is generalized. Now he is specific. First he says, God requires us to owe no man anything. We fulfill our debt to them how? By keeping God's law in relationship to them. So what he has said before begins by, in effect, saying, all right, pay your taxes and all. But if you do this, what you're going to do is eliminate a good many of your taxes. If you render to every man their due and to God what is his due, you're going to remake society. I have great difficulty in always uh, understanding the uh, statement there, authorities are the ministers of God. It the does ministers. not seem to be any longer true, if indeed it was then. What was that? That authorities are the ministers of God. Yes. We are uh, the authority of the state and the government and to describe or define that as the minister of God is difficult for me. Well, the word in the Greek is diakonos, which we have in the English as deacon. Now, a deacon in the Bible, a diakonos, was a household servant. If you had a maid, the biblical word would be the feminine form of uh, diakonos. Now, God is saying the state is not an independent power. It's my household servant. Its duty is to provide justice, 
Just as, say, a household servant might be assigned to cleaning windows, God says, the state is my servant to provide justice. If they're not doing it, God is going to deal with them and bring judgment upon them. So God is saying the state cannot see itself as an independent power. So when God speaks of authorities, we have to see all authority in the sense of a servant. Our Lord says, He who would be greatest among you, let him be the servant of all. No, because it must use its authority, its position, to be the servant of all. For example, uh, Paul speaks of this with regard to marriage in Ephesians 5. And he says, Husbands, love your wives and serve them as Christ served the church, gave his life for it. Well, that's a dramatic uh, imagery of service. Christ died to redeem his church, his people. And the husband is to serve in the same way. Now, the humanistic concept of authority, and our Lord says, it is not so among the Gentiles. Let it not be so among you that uh, you imitate the Gentiles. Where authority means lording it over others, as our Lord says. But for us, he says, it must be a ministry, a diaconate. Must be, but this is not necessarily what it is. And even the woman in her relationship to her husband owes her first obedience to God, yes. her second obedience to her husband. Exactly. And when the husband is out of step with that commandment of God, I do believe, even though it may not be stated in that many words, that in that instance the woman is to follow God's teaching and guidance and not her husband's. Exactly. To the same measure, when the state ceases to serve, I do not believe that the individual is bound to this commandment. This oh, may yes. sound heretical, but yeah. I don't believe that one must remain subject to a servant who no longer serves the people, but indeed uh, is immoral yes. to the point of being immoral in its taxation. Which yes. brings me to my next question. How do you deal with the uh, what I would call secured as unsecured debt. In other words, the state borrows, um, you know, with no security, so that we're led into <coughs> a condition of no hope for the future. The individual who goes out and buys a business property and borrows against that in order to avoid paying some of the usury type taxes that are imposed upon us has a security and therefore the individual lending the money, it seems to me, is a bit of a different lender than the lender who lends on no security. Well, when the state so borrows without security, there. they're borrowing against your and my properties. And our future. And our future, of course. That's is their there security. not a difference when you talk about security? Yes. Security, security. <laughs> but first, uh, 
Hodge a century ago made clear when he was commenting on husbands and wives. He said, all authority is conditional upon the Word of God. So that all authority is under God. And when it goes beyond the Word of God, it has no authority. So, uh, the modern state has forfeited its legitimate authority. I want to deal with that for just a moment before we go on. What do we do? Well, revolution doesn't change anything. It produces uh, upheavals, and an even worse group takes over, usually. Revolutions have always failed. Regeneration is the only answer. So that we have to work to change men so that we can change the society. Now, the Bible says that debt can be and normally is secured unless the form of security is one which deprives the man of the ability to make his living, taking the tools of his trade as security. So, unsecured debt uh, is something that only the state does. Uh, by the way, the uh, major form of state debts today is through the semi-independent corporations the state creates, like the Tennessee Valley Authority and uh, the Coastal Commission and so on, which have bonding and borrowing and taxing powers but are beyond the reach of the voters. The national debt on budget debt is two trillion. Off budget comes to 13 trillion. So you can see how uh, irresponsible the federal government is and how unrelated it is to the facade of a Republican form of government. Yes, Jack. Pat Robertson on TV, he very rightly says, get out of debt. Then he turns around and says, put, put your money where it's safe by treasury bills. Is that a thing for a Christian to do? Well, that's investing in inflation and in the uh, most uh, shaky and dishonest organization going today. Yes, Otto? Well, the, the only instance I can think of where uh, a nation was regenerated and along the lines you're discussing was Scotland under John Knox. Mm -hmm. uh, Scotland before Knox was the most backward and savage country in uh, Western Europe. And of course there was a great deal of crime. After Knox, not only did he alter the government, but they didn't even have to have jails. For over 150 years, there was so little crime that it wasn't necessary to have jail. Right on that sometime, Otto. That's yes. a good point. Very good. John? Uh, just one thing. I had a pastor uh, a year and a half, two years ago. I heard a sermon in Los Angeles in which the pastor I went through and explained the turn the other cheek uh, situation. 
And uh, I was talking again this last weekend to, to some of the couple of ladies who have children in our school over there, and they brought that question up. And I explained to them what the pastor said was in the first century when you were struck on the cheek, it was only by superior authority. The equals never struck each other on the cheek. And it's your only viable response to being struck on the cheek by a superior authority was to either bow the knee or put your forehead in the dust so the superior authority could put his boot on the back of your neck. And that when seen in that context, when Christ says, turn the other cheek, he's not telling us to bow the knee or anything of that nature, as most Christians interpret today. But what he's really saying is resist. And I was just wondering if you'd comment on that. I, I thought the sermon that he went into in great detail uh, in, with a historical situation and and with an examination of the of the text and comparing it with other passages. And then he pointed out that most people today think turning the other cheek means roll over and play dead for the opposition. But it's obvious that Christ didn't turn the other cheek in some respects. And it's obvious that none of the hundreds of thousands of Christian martyrs. Uh, over the last uh, centuries have turned the cheek. They obviously broke somebody's laws somewhere along the line. Mm -hmm. The point is that they, they weren't godly laws. Mm -hmm. Very good point, John. Why don't we get together and write a little paper on that because I think it needs doing. Well, I, you know, I have never heard anyone do a, a, an exposition of the verse in its historical context. Mm -hmm. And he said, he said quite simply, he said, you're the only one who ever struck anyone on the cheek in the first century was a superior authority. The centurion could strike a plebeian, but a plebeian could never strike a, a centurion. Mm -hmm. You see, uh, Caesar could strike anyone he so chose. Mm -hmm. You see, but the only appropriate response to it in some societies it was bow the knee. You went down to one knee, and in other societies uh, in the in the Fertile Crescent, for example. Uh, the tradition there was to put your forehead on the dust, in the <coughs> dust or on the floor, and then the authority would put his foot on the back of your neck. Now, the interesting thing is that if the, the authority did not put his foot on the back of your neck, or he did not acknowledge mm -hmm. that you had bowed the knee, he suffered a great disgrace at that time. Mm -hmm. Because he was, in effect, refusing to acknowledge the position, his own position. So there was a lot of ramifications involved in that. Uh, the very word compel in that passage, if any man compel thee to go a mile, goes back to the compulsory draft of ancient Persia. So the passage as a whole has deep roots. Well, our time is up now. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Our Lord and our God, it has been good for us to be here. Thy word is truth, and thy word is a light unto our way. We pray, our Father, that thy word may light the way for this country, and that it, even as Scotland was made a new people by John Knox and his fellow pastors, so the United States may be set ablaze in the days ahead, that we might see thy regenerating power make us again a free people in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.